Our gospel lesson for today is found in Matthew chapter 4. We are reading verses 1 through 22. Listen carefully to God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We come and confess that in us there is poverty, but in you there are immeasurable riches. In us there is darkness, but with you there is light. And God, we come and we ask that you dispel our darkness. We ask that you eradicate the poverty within us and that you lead us into your truth. And so we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. As a young college minister after graduating from Furman University, I worked at Presbyterian College in the booming metropolis of Clinton, South Carolina. It's a small town of roughly 2,000 people, but it was one of the most formative experiences of my life working with college students. I had been trained rigorously in tools of evangelism, 
had various methods that could be used, and I was working with young students, just exploring the world, some of them asking religious questions, some of them not. And in the midst of trying to navigate all of that, I adopted a certain evangelism method that I was using, but I began to note something, that the questions I was asking, that these questions were not the same ones as they were asking. I was asking them certain questions about God, and they were asking a completely different set of questions. And the sets of questions they were asking were much more aimed at why should I trust you? Why should I believe you? I was making points about the believability of the Bible and the trustworthiness of God, and they were just simply not interested. They weren't interested in facts and figures. They were asking me a relational question. Years later, as I looked deeper into these issues, I was to come to understand more fully what was happening because it was not unique to the students of Presbyterian College. Go Blue Hose. It's the mascot. Blue Hose. I know. It's like certainly you could do better, right? Um, But these questions were trickling down. They were coming from the headwaters of thinkers like Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, and Western culture was been deeply shaped by this, even if we're not conscious of it, but adopting a lens of suspicion, especially with regards to institutional authority. When someone was making a claim, and when that someone or something especially was making a claim that was going to challenge our individual freedom or our own self de- uh, self-determination, we were going to be quick to ask questions What is your agenda? How are you attempting to use me? And when is this going to go south? These were the questions written upon the hearts of these students. Because we live in an age where we deconstruct everything. The meaning we think is obviously hidden and we need to get to it, that it lies below the surface. But of course, this is also not all bad. Some things in our culture desperately need to be deconstructed, especially when we've given ourselves to things in blind obedience and trust. And there have been plenty of institutions in our culture, let's be clear, those institutions being political or religious, educational, or economic, that really require some detailed scrutiny. However, this deconstruction can also become very self-destructive in the way that we use it. The usefulness of any tool is determined by the task at hand. For example, an axe is wonderful to use for chopping wood, but it's a very poor tool if attempting to implement it to move dirt. And deconstruction will serve us the same way when we try to use it universally across everything, an approach to all knowledge, an approach to all relationships. It serves us poorly because all it does is absolutely isolates us. It protects us from any form of authority. It keeps anyone from infringing upon us. 
because we can tear down their motives and say that we're not letting them in. But what we do is we enshrine our own wisdom and we enshrine our own judgments as king. And we preserve our own autonomy. And this becomes a particular stumbling block when we encounter this Jesus. Because in chapter 3, we are told by John the Baptist that there is a mighty one coming. He says that he is mightier than I. He comes with authority. And then in the baptism, we hear of that royal authority, that he is the beloved son. He's the beloved son of God, the second person of the Trinity who's reigned with God in all eternity. And he is the beloved son of Psalm 2, sent into the world to take up the inheritance promised to him. Royal dignity. And he is the mighty one who is ordained at his baptism to take up his priestly and kingly office. And then when he begins his public ministry in verse 17, as we just read, his first words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He begins with a command. And this command is threatening. And for the deconstructive mind that looks behind and to the motive, this is ultimately threatening. Because he's calling us to turn. To turn away from our affections. To turn away from our beliefs. To turn away from our actions in order to orient our lives to him. This is what repentance means. And then to make it a bit worse, in verse 19, he calls the disciples and he says, follow me. And you see the response immediately. They did so. And friends, in our own cultural moment, there could be nothing more threatening to hear. When we are so shy of any claim of authority, when it scares us to death and when it frightens us to meet this Jesus who says repent and follow and is demanding that it be done immediately. It fills us with tension. But this is the same Jesus that we meet today. We have a God who claims ultimate authority over us in a culture that is suspicious of every bit of authority, especially when that authority threatens our freedom our self-determination, and our autonomy, and that is exactly what Jesus threatens. And so the critical question for us to ask and to answer this morning is why would we ever entertain such an all-encompassing demand? Why would we begin to listen to Jesus' command to repent and to follow. And why on earth would anyone ever consider that to be good news? There's two things in Matthew 4 that we see about Jesus' authority and why that authority is actually not a threat to your freedom, but it's actually the very foundation of freedom. And so let's consider each of these. And first, in verse 17 we see that this Jesus is not a threat because he initiates with a gift. Again, his first sermon, short, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
you would be out for any football game if that was the length of a sermon. (laughs) But he's calling the crowd to repentance. But the demand is there, but it's important to recognize how the grammar of the sentence works. Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. That means it's near. That means it's arriving, that it is breaking into the world. You could say it's breaking news. Last night, sometime after entering into deep sleep, I was woken by one of my children who will not be identified. (laughs) The truth is that I had given up on the Jags in the second quarter. (laughs) I knew that if they managed to come back, that it would be too exciting and I would never be able to go to sleep. I have some hard rules about Saturday nights and bedtimes and trying to keep those, and so I went to bed early. And I was woken up. Dad, you want to come see this? There are five minutes left. It's like, I could kill you. But it was breaking news, and it was exciting, at least to him. (laughs) And friends, Jesus comes announcing news. He comes declaring that the kingdom of God, this is the reign of God, the dynamic power of heaven, is now breaking into the earth that in the fall of human beings, when we turned against God, there was a veil that was erected between heaven and earth. And now that veil was being pulled back, that heaven was coming down in certain ways. And so the healing of all things, that rift that had been fixed by human sin, was now going to be undone. That God was going to forgive sins, that he was going to heal diseases, that he was going to fix and undo death. Jesus was saying that that was arriving, that it is arriving, that it will arrive in him. But note what he says. He does not say that you are to repent so that the kingdom of God would come. The order of this is really important to get. He says repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has initiated. The grace of God has come. The life of heaven has descended onto the earth. This is all the initiative of God. And then we are called to turn, to turn from ourselves, to ally ourselves with this Jesus in order to participate in this great kingdom that is here. And friends, this is what takes away what can be so threatening to many is that this Jesus begins in this enormous statement of grace, this breaking news that God is healing all things, that God is restoring all things, that the catastrophe of the Garden of Eden is now being undone. And so he invites us to join him, to turn from ourselves, and to embrace him. But second... In verses 1 through 11, we also see that Jesus comes to do what we cannot do. 
Not only does he come with an initiating grace, he comes to do something for us, something that we cannot do for ourselves. After his baptism, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus is led by the spirits into the wilderness to be tested. All the events up to this point in Matthew's gospel map very nicely onto the experience of Israel. Jesus goes into the wilderness after passing through the waters, just like the Exodus events. But of course, the Israelites there facing temptation fail miserably in the wilderness. There are a series of temptations as Jesus encounters the devil. And it's important for us to consider each of those three temptations. The first, after Jesus has fasted for 40 days, we are told that Jesus, in his humanity, and he was fully human, while also being fully God, that he was hungry. This is not pretend. He was hungry, famished. And so the devil comes to him. And listen again to the temptation in verse 3. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's amazing the way that this first temptation works. Because Satan comes to him in the midst of his physical weakness. And if you can imagine the extent of that physical weakness, not having eaten for 40 days, I become hangry after six. 40 days. No food. And he is tempted to turn stones into bread to provide for his needs. But what we see is that Jesus is steadfast in the midst of his own physical weakness. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And he indicates to the devil that God's word is more essential for life than bread. And friends, this is his counter to the first moment of temptation, despite his weakness. Second, we are told that the devil takes him to Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says these words in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's important to note the shift in the temptation. The first appealed to Jesus in His weakness. This second temptation actually appeals to Jesus in his virtue, in his strength. Jesus has just demonstrated to Satan that he trusts God. And so now Satan appeals to him to make a great display of his trust. It's subtle and it's cunning. He's attempting to entrap him. So he pressures him to take up God on his word quoting from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Note that this temptation takes place in the church. They are on the temple mount, <laughs> using God's word. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, recognizing that he's called to trust God, 
not to test him. And Jesus here, in all of his humanity, he shows that he's dependent in his strength, that he gives himself fully to God. But finally, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain. We're not given the location. And they are there on top of the mountain surveying the kingdoms of the earth and all the glory of those kingdoms. And they are offered to Jesus if he will fulfill one condition. That is that he fall down, prostrate himself before the devil and worship him. Then Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 in verse 13. And he reminds Satan that God alone is to be worshipped and his worship is not to be transferred to any other. But what happens here in this final temptation is these situations and the pressure grows because the devil offers to Jesus what already belongs to him. We saw in the baptism those words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the beloved son is pulled and drawn from Psalm 2. And the beloved son is to ask the question of God about his inheritance. And God promises to give that inheritance. That is the nations of the earth. He promises to give that to the son of David. And so we have already seen that Jesus is identified as the one who will inherit the nations. And so what is happening here? Satan offers Jesus a shortcut because the second half of the quotation is the costly part of Jesus' inheritance. The one with whom God is well pleased. This is the quotation from Isaiah 42. And that Jesus will be a bruised reed. That he is a suffering servant. One who has priestly service in which he will give himself for the sins of many. And so Satan offers Jesus the shorter route. The shorter route to taking the nations of the earth. One that would cut out the vocation of suffering. One that would cut out the demands of obedience. One that would make it simpler for him. And it must have been incredibly appealing not to go through the insults and the misunderstandings, not to go through being disowned even by family members at times, not to be maligned, not to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, not to be misunderstood by his disciples walking with them day in and day out and still finding that they were hard of heart. Not to then be publicly humiliated in a way that's difficult for us to appreciate. Stripped naked, beaten, accused of things that he didn't do. Dying a death like a common criminal in front of the world, mocked, derided. And so it must have been tempting to take that inheritance, to do some good with it, but not to enter into the vocation of suffering. But 
the son gives a resounding answer to the devil's temptations. He says no. He says no, and he says no not for himself, not just for himself. He says no for you, and he says no for me. Because just in the background of all of this, what we are to hear is that disastrous moment in Genesis 3, when our first parents and Adam and Eve failed to say no, but they said yes to their own autonomy. They said yes to their own interest. They said yes to their own wants. But we see here a second Adam standing before temptation in the wilderness, and he says no. And he says no because he's going to then stand in your place and offer himself. And by saying no, he qualifies himself as the one righteous candidate the one righteous candidate who can give himself in your place. And then by faith in him, when you put your faith in him, his righteous status before God becomes your own. This is what his saying no is about. By saying no, he's not setting an example that you are to then follow and somehow gain enough frequent flyer points to be whisked off into the heavens. This is not what he's doing. He is establishing something for you. He is giving you a gift. He does all of this for you. And friends, this is the death of suspicion. That yes, Jesus comes with these commands. He calls us to repent. He calls us to follow. Because he's brought the kingdom of heaven. And because he is the righteous one who goes to stand in our place. And so there is no hidden manipulation lurking just, just beneath the cover and just beneath the words. There is no power play, but rather the mighty one, the one who is mightier than you, the one who is mightier than I. He comes to serve. He comes to give of himself. And he comes to give you freedom that you would know the life of the kingdom of heaven that's breaking into the world. And so, friends, in all of our suspicions, in all of our sorrows, in all of our pains, in all of our fears, Jesus cries out today, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is arriving. The kingdom of heaven is here. It has drawn near in me. And we're to see not suspicion and not fear, but perfect love given to us in initiating grace, given to us in a sacrificial victim who's righteous on our behalf. And so entrust yourselves to him. Fully invest yourselves in him. And like the disciples, follow him immediately. Let's ask for his help. Father, we confess our suspicions and our fears. We acknowledge them. We know that they make us slow. And we don't always immediately follow. Compel us by the righteous one who resisted all these temptations, who was steadfast in his weakness, 
who was dependent upon you in his strength, who was victorious in his obedience. Help us, God. And may we look to Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name.